Welcome back in to the Magic the Gathering unofficial audiobooks podcast. I, of course, am Baron, Mage Master of Tilaria, and you may have heard our narrator, Phil, and his pleas and begging for you, the listener, to join the Patreon that continues this project's beating heart. And the goal he set to rejoin best friends of years past, which is Phil's wife and her best friend in America, and how all the proceeds will be going to making that dream a reality. Like Joyra rejoining us after her coma, or well, to Fairy. To help with this endeavor, I have brought our favorite metal man, Karn, to help get you to join the Patreon. Okay, Karn, have at it. Join the Patreon. Is that it? Yes, that's it. Well, thank you, Karn. Thank you, Baron. Okay, that's enough. Yes, that's enough. All right, we're done here. I've been done. Oh, great. Well done, Khan. I'm just trying to help the man, and you... Chapter 11 Teferi had not adapted well in the months after his rescue. The explosion had been horrible, of course, and the fire afterward... He had been utterly devastated by the fact that the world and all his former friends were nearly 25 years older. Teams of healers had gingerly counseled the victim about his ordeal, focusing on his slow time isolation. What isolation? He asked. I was alone for three seconds. When you're on fire, you don't care if you're alone. The 14 years before the explosion were more traumatic. Talk about isolation. I had no peers. Every equal of mine was five years older than me. Now they're almost three times my age? Joy was 40? Mulder was probably 540. What about Teferi? Oh, he's still 14. It was another wound Urza couldn't heal. Neither, apparently, could Teferi. After weeks of counseling, Teferi told the healers to leave. When they wouldn't, he cast an itching enchantment on them. They struggled to maintain their decorum, but soon were scratching like a pack of mongrels. They fled. Teferi stalked out of the infirmary. He marched across the finished academy. That wall wasn't here before, he growled and flung a spell at it. Green coils of energy leapt from his fingers and lashed into the grass at the base of the wall. Ivy grew rampantly up from the ground, overwhelming the limestone walls. In moments, the redoubt was buried deep beneath riling green mound. Look at those lovely towers! His hand flung out again. Moss sprouted all along the rooftops and blew slate and hung down at gray beards. Teferi's tantrum began to attract a crowd of students. Heads popped from behind shutters. Faces appeared in doorways. Students emerged to follow the temptuous lad. They all knew him from the Teferi monument and excitedly crowded up to see the teenage hermit in action. Teferi whirled. Get out of here! I'm tired of being stared at. You've had nearly 15 years. Look at something else. The students shied back from him, but the moment Teferi stalked onward, they followed. Drawing a deep breath, Teferi bellowed. Then look at this! The student robes of old Talaria opened obligingly down their back panel, allowing for various necessary functions in this unnecessary one. A new generation of students glimpsed Teferi's infamous breach of etiquette. Many of them turned in disgust, others laughed, some even checking to see if their work suits would allow a similar display. Teferi was apparently dissatisfied with this response and added to his visual display an olfactory one. He cast a spell that sent a stink cloud through the whole academy. The crowd shut their mouths and squinted their eyes and ran. Doors and shutters slammed closed. The community that had stared at Teferi continuously for over a decade at last closed their eyes to him, and he disappeared. 
Eventually, the squelching cloud dissipated enough that students and scholars ventured back into the streets. Baron and Malzra were livid. A week-long experiment ruined. Their anger only deepened when the prankster was nowhere to be found. Look everywhere, Baron commanded the students in the streets. He hissed to Malzra, We've not saved him from fire and time, only to lose him to stupidity. The whole school was mobilized. It seemed they were being invaded. It was too bad Teferi was gone, for he would have loved the sight. Joyra emerged into the din. Students and scholars trooped like army ants through the academy, opening every door, looking beneath every bed, poking at every curtain and tapestry. Her brow was creased in consternation. Teferi, where are you hiding? A smile came to her face, as though she could read his mind. I knew I'd find you here, Joyra said quietly as she approached her niche on the western edge of the aisle. Teferi didn't look up. He sat on a sunny slope of sandstone and stared out at the glimmering sea. He had come to this spot once before, ages ago, and discovered Carrick and Joyra trysting within. Teferi's heart must have broken, but he hadn't betrayed her secret, even in the face of Malzra's questions. Joyra remembered the time. To her, it was ages ago, but for Teferi, it had been only a matter of months. Ages. Months. What did they mean on Talaria? Joyra herself seemed little older than in those days. Slow time water had kept her outward age around 22, and the coma had left her seeming younger still. Her inward vision quest had restored her. It had saved Teferi and her as well. She had discovered a way to break through the temporal wall that isolated him and the social wall that had isolated her. They were perhaps not soulmates, she and Teferi, but they were metaphysical twins. Joyra eased up the rock and slid into position beside him. It was as though she were reenacting that low moment ages ago, though now Carrick was gone. It felt right to sit beside Teferi instead. I'm glad you're here. It's a good place to be when you're feeling trapped between Talari and the world. The muscles along Teferi's jaw clenched. He stared out to sea. If you have to be alone, it's the best place in the world. You don't understand, Teferi broke in. Yes, I do, she said. Yes, I do. She reached a hand out to him. He didn't take it. We're farther apart than ever. When you were 18, you always told me to grow up. Well, look, now you're 40 and I still haven't taken your advice. This is Talaria, Joyra said philosophically. Time doesn't matter. You'll see. In a few years, we'll be the same age. He heaved an angry breath. A few years. An eternity. A horrible eternity. Not so horrible, Joyra said. You've got friends. At long last, he took her hand. Thanks, Joyra. Thanks. Seven years had passed since Teferi was released from his temporal prison. In that time, he had at last become a man, a young man, to be sure, but at 21, he and Joyra seemed the same age. She had been partaking of slow time water for two decades. Most of the scholars and students over the age of 30 were also allowed to drink slow time water once a year, the frequency required to halt aging. More frequent drinks caused strange illnesses. Since no one understood the long-term effects of the stuff, its use was strictly regulated. Those younger than 30 were forbidden to drink it at all. Teferi at one point had hoped to be reprimanded by Baron for drinking fast time water in hopes of growing up sooner. In the seven years that he had been free, young Teferi had distinguished himself among the pupils and shown a new maturity. His pranksome nature eventually played itself out, though he still had a sharp wit and occasionally a sharp tongue. 
Among Teferi's most ingenious innovations was organizing a squad of temporal spelunkers, students interested in studying the effects of movement into and out of steeper time gradients. They modified Joyra's machine to create longer-lasting artificial bridges into drastic time shifts. Teferi even pioneered using existing rivers to cross temporal curtains. By submerging oneself completely in water and holding a large glass jar of air inverted over one's head, a spelunker could be carried along by the current and, cushioned by the water, slowly readjust to a different time. Through such discoveries, the Academy was able to establish laboratories in moderate fast time areas where a month of experimentation could occur in a week. The most visible effect of these accelerated laboratories was the rapid proliferation of Malzra's falcon attackers. Their intricate mechanisms were manufactured more quickly than power stones could be found. The crystals came in only sporadic numbers aboard New Talaria as it made its rounds from Thransite to Thransite. Meanwhile, Malzra had been busy designing another set of guardians. He took the sensor systems from the guards he had built for the walls of Old Talaria and merged them with various locomotor apparatuses, bipedal structures modeled after long-legged and fleet-footed emus, preferentially quadrupedal frames based upon the feline physiology of panther warriors, and even octopedal devices made for ambling over any terrain type and even the sheerest surfaces. Each of these devices was armed with specially designed pinchers and blades for piercing Phyrexian flesh, an array of sight-targeted quarrel launchers, and a core packed with explosive powder to be activated when all other systems are spent and an engaged foe has incapacitated the sensory or locomotor systems. The resulting machines were collectively known as the Guardian class, a fearful assortment of artifacts. The two-legged variety wore Talarian runners, capable of great bounding speeds, their mirror-like torsos bearing eight coral ports up each side, where wings would be on the emus, scythe blades emerged to snap together before them. These artifact creatures were meant to fight on open fields. The four-legged machines were known as pumas, sleek stalkers that would patrol the forests from the treetops and drop soundlessly onto any intruders. Their dagger-like claws could bear them swiftly up even sheer tree trunks and could take off a man's head with one swipe, slicing his neck into three equal discs. These claws sharpened themselves each time they were withdrawn into the machine's pads. The final type, eight-legged beasts, were called scorpions, with pinchers fore and aft and the dexterity of any spider. As yet, only half a dozen of each of these beasts existed, but their gleaming hides and dark gemstone eyes were enough to frighten even the older students. Given the need and given Teferi's fast-time laboratories, armies of these creatures could be created in a single year. With patrols of runners, pumas, and scorpions on the ground and flights of falcons in the sky, Malzra felt he could ensure the safety of his isle. In addition to these forces, Malzra instructed students on the creation of ornithopters. Five were currently being built. The academy had become an armed fortification, despite the efforts of Baron and Joyra. They had ensured, however, that it was still a human place. They emphasized learning and experimentation over arms production and scheduled celebrations and festivals to help break the tedium of work. Even so, the black blight of the Phyrexian Gorge never went away, and every tender thing that came into being in the walls of the new academy did so in the shadow of that horrid threat. Then they found it, the dead Phyrexian lying at the top of the gorge, having clawed its way up the cliff. It had used the properties of normal time river water to help cushion its passage, climbing a thin waterfall. Even so, the beast was macerated from the crown of its bony head to the last spike in its scourge-like tail. The fiend's pink skin was ripped, revealing mounds of gray muscle over a hulking skeleton. Its once long claws had been worn to bloody nubs in its tortured climb to the top of the chasm. It had passed through the shredding blades of time and somehow survived to reach the top. 
After 200 years of experimentation and mutation, the Phyrexians had bred a beast resistant enough to time change to climb 500 feet through the curtain of fast time. In two more generations, they would be strong enough to escape the gorge and fight. In four more generations, there would be hundreds of them, with their fast time advantages. The Phyrexians could produce four generations of hybrids in eight years of time outside. This was why Malzra planned the Day of Falcons. Even as he geared up for all-out war, he devised a swift, preemptive airstrike. The attack had two objectives. Minimally, it would slay Phyrexians, perhaps even the new generations, and buy time for Malzra to complete his arsenal. Maximally, it could exterminate every last beast in the gorge, and thereby, and its threat forever. Baron approved the plan, which required no risk to students or scholars, and employed the 750 Falcon mechanisms already created. At long last, the Day of Falcons arrived. Atop the giant's pate, Baron and Karn watched Malzra climb into the framework of his newly completed ornithopter. This command-class mechanism carried remote sensors that were linked to the prototype runners, pumas, and scorpions deployed in a circle around the gorge. It also bore a payload of 50 powder bombs, a complement of 16 coral ports, and wings capable of being swept back alongside the main struts to allow for swift diving. From this aerial command seat, Malzra would monitor and direct the coming attack. Baron squinted into the bald morning sun. He held his hand visor-like over his eyes and peered from the giant's pate out toward the edges of the island. Thin tendrils of red smoke appeared on the western rim of the isle and frayed out on the sea winds. Joyride and her three squads have reached the shore and set up their posts. They are the last of 38 launch squads. The Falcon fleet is ready to be deployed. Urza strapped himself into the command seat. His usual blue robes were replaced by a charcoal gray suit replete with pockets, tool belt, and armor at the shoulders. He wore boots laced to the knee and his gemstone eyes were shielded by a dark crescent of polished obsidian. This works today. Perhaps we can send millions of these beasts into Phyrexia itself and not a single Dominarian will have to fight. What about you? Baron asked levelly. You are Dominarian. Don't you ever stop worrying? Malzra asked. I will fly over the gorge, drop my payload of bombs, and rise out of reach of anything that could hurl my way. It'll be just like flying over the deserts of the Falaji. Besides, I'm only a diversion, a smokescreen to hide the assault. The Falcons themselves will hide their own assault. That's why we're taking the trouble of launching them at the edge of the island. They'll outrun sound itself in their dive. The Phyrexians will neither hear or see them until they're torn apart. Your bomb self only risks you and your new ornithopter. We both know I might possibly survive a fall through a temporal bubble around the Phyrexians. Could you survive the moments afterwards, surrounded by hundreds, perhaps thousands of the beasts? Planeswalking cannot save you when the distances are temporal. With a snort, Malzra activated the Great Thran device. It shivered to life. Its wings accordioned out and began to beat. The machine rose, slow and animated, into the skies. This is a battle I must fight and win! Malzra soared away from the giant's pate. Just before the wings whirring drowned out all the sound, Baron shouted, There was another battle, a much bigger battle you must fight and win! Karn watched the machine climb into the sky, beyond the reach of words. The silver man said, The crews have prepared your ornithopter, Mage Master, as you requested. They included a payload of 50 bombs. After a long-drawn breath, Baron said, I hope I will not need it. Master Malzra might survive a fall into the time bubble, but I am quite... He broke off as though he thought better of what he was about to say. You are quite human, yes, Karn agreed, his eyes still focused on the shrinking ship. And I have been near him long enough to know Master Mulzra is not. 
The not human, it is not bird, spiraled upward above their heads in a maneuver designed to catch the attention of every beast in the gorge and to signal the falcon crews at the edge of the aisle. There's the signal, Jorah said to herself. She peered into the rising sun where Malzra rode in bold spirals. He'll start his bombing run any moment. Turning, she called to her three squad captains. Falcons ready? Squad 15 ready, replied Teferi, who stood beside an array of 20 falcon creatures. Each bird occupied a small metal launch platform, anchored by a foot-long spike driven into the wet sand. The small creatures shimmered in the early light, their metal pinions folded against their legs and their eyes glinting with predatory hunger. Squad 16 ready, came the report of its captain. Squad 17 ready. Joyra paused a moment, surveying the gleaming rows of the bird creatures. Fifteen rows, four each. They and their 690 comrades could well save the isle. Loose falcons! Sixty pairs of wings flashed out. Sixty artifact creatures crouched at a moment, gathering themselves to leap into the air. Then the wind was filled with the sharp slap of metal wings. The falcons rose in a great glittering cloud, camouflaged against the silvery work of the sea. The great rush of them upward of wings and cogs seeking probes was something horrific. Joyra glimpsed another mass of glimmering wings along the shore in either direction. In moments, though, even her own three squads had ceased to be individual birds and became only a writhing swarm, an amorphous swirling monster. Then it, too, was gone, through the ceiling of clouds. All across the island, there was no more sign of the flocks of killer raptors. God speed you, Joyra said to the cluttered sky. God speed you. Urza reached the peak of his spiral into the sky. He folded the wings of his ornithopter back beside the struts. The nose of the craft lost lift and dropped toward the black rift below. Urza blinked placidly behind the obsidian crescent that shaded his gemstone eyes. Wind shrieked over the triangular wings. The aisle rushed up to meet him, easing the airfoils outward. He caught lift and corkscrewed low above the black cleft. The craft leveled into a furious strafing pass. Black ballistae bolts soared out in a spiky forest all around him. Urza triggered the hold, pouring powder bombs down onto the much-scarred fortification below. Each tumbling incendiary device plunged into the fast-time envelope and rushed fiercely to impact. Shrapnel and smoke belched out in a line below Urza. He banked, soaring away from another barrage, and stared with delight at the boiling cloud of destruction. They would not see the doom that rose at the edge of the island, rose to descend and pierce the walls of their time prison and slay them. Nor did he see the bolt that rose with fiendish speed and smashed through his port wing and dragged him down into the Phyrexian pit. Amid rolling clouds of smoke, shrieks of glee arose. Every throat and air sac and proboscis in the Phyrexian rent hooted as the ballistae bolt transfixed Urza Planeswalker's flying machine. It dragged on the wing, the ornithopter listed with agonizing slowness. Would the man have time and sense to planeswalk from the falling wreck? The smoke thickened, obscuring the view of all beasts below. Crick surged to the rail of his observation tower and grasped it. Even as he gripped the metal, he saw one wing of the machine dip into the fast time envelope and send rings of distortion ripping out from it. The sudden inertial change hurled the rest of the ornithopter, rider and all, into the gorge. That was all he saw, smoke boiling up to obscure anything else. Crick spun to shout down into the riot of dying Phyrexians and burning buildings. To the south wall! Camps for the planeswalker!
Stunned, Baron and Karn saw the Ballastate Bolt lunge up from the Black Gorge like a darting fish, lance the wing of Urza's Ornithopter, and drag the listing thing down into the lashing currents of fast time. The flying machine whirled once, hung up on the surface of the envelope, and then, before Baron could send out a saving spell, slid down into the vast murk of the gorge. Smoke and darkness obscured all else. Baron turned, darting down the slope of the giant's pate. Karn called after him. Where are you going? You said my ornithopter was prepped, came the shouted response flung over Baron's shoulder as he ran. What shall I do? Do anything you can, but be quick. Minutes are hours. The silver man suddenly wished he had the controls that would summon the runners, pumas, and scorpions. That useless thought was swept away by a sudden shrieking roar, descending from everywhere and nowhere at once. Karn had hardly lifted his brow when, from every corner of the heavens, shooting stars fell in a great converging ring. The whistle of their flight rattled the silver plates across Karn's body, with a series of booms that came so close to each other as to sound like a ceaseless peal of thunder, the lightning-swift creatures lanced down the sky. They punched through the time ceiling and accelerated to blinding speeds. They seemed to ricochet between the rock walls of the gorge. Do anything you can. The words rang in the resounding air. Karn shifted his silver bulk. He lifted the Viachino luck charm to his mouth for an awkward kiss and bolted down the steep slope of fallen trees between the giant's pate and the gorge. In clumsy moments, he reached the black lip of the space. Without pause or thought, he hurled himself within. It happened too quickly. The impossible ballastate bolt through the wing, the sudden unresponsive stick, the listing turn, the tug of fast time, yanking Urza and his machine down into the envelope. Before he could think to planeswalk, he was immersed in the vast, churning field of the gorge. Then all thought and will and power were channeled into holding himself together against rending, dispersing distortion. His hands turned to protoplasmic mush, his feet evaporated. The wave of destruction clammed up his limbs, to knees and elbows, hips and shoulders until heart and head both were melting into air. The temporal field tore not merely particle from particle, but wave from wave. The core of his being dissolved. Urza had to think his body and mind and soul, had to plan them and stare at them in the immutable design of them to force chaos back into order. Again and again he resolved himself, red clouds of pulverized meat, accreting into a figure lashed into the ornithopter seat. All the while, the ruined bird machine and the ruined man wrangled in a tangle between worlds of light and darkness. Suddenly he was free and falling, the last angry torrents of flesh recombined, and he plummeted. The air was dark and dank and foul. The scent of glistening oil was overwhelming. Sulfur smoke roiled from the bombs he himself had just dropped, and beneath those ropey columns, armies of monsters converged. They slithered in gray-skinned masses, slime and bone and horn, clamoring over each other like swarming roaches. Urza fell. There was not enough strength left to planeswalk. Even if there were, his powers would not allow him to step through the gates of time. There were spells, though. With a weary thought, Urza cast a flying enchantment on himself and stopped his descent. Ragged, panting, if only as a reminder of the physical form he cast, Urza hung for a moment in midair. With another effort of will, he began to rise toward the surface of the gorge. It was like ascending through great pressurized depths toward the air and light above. The first ballastate bolt was a surprise, ripping through his liver and tearing out his right lung before pulverizing his sternum and snagging in his ribcage. Pain was a sensation like any other, useful for orienting him in his physical form, but this screaming, hopeless pain shattered his concentration for a moment. He shut off the klaxon of agony, reshaped his body with a thought, letting flesh shrink away from the shaft until the bolt tumbled free. He grew a new liver and lung from the pulverized muck on the old ones. But this was work. 
and it distracted him a few moments. He fell again. The air rushing up around him was a flashing mass of smoke, oil reek and black shafts. Two more bolts pinioned him in his plummet. By the time they, too, were out and the organs they had skewered were regrown, Urza Planeswalker came splashing down in five feet of foul water. From a nearby causeway of carved basalt, hordes of gibbering monsters, star-shaped eyes with great shags of barbed hair and curved claws and teeth indistinguishable from each other in their scythe-like savagery, hurled themselves into the water. The horrid splashing of the deformed figures seemed to slap of shark tails in a frenzy. In moments, Phyrexians surrounded Urza and rushed in, biting great chunks from him. He thrashed against them. Lightning roared out from his hands beneath the water. Phyrexians died in scores, but more came. Whenever he fought free of them and began to rise through the air, arrows and ballistae bolts ran him through, and he sank again into the churning flood. They would not kill him, though they could. They would only harry him until every sorcery was spent, every last trick gone to the graveyard. Then they would net him like one of their scavenger fish and haul him up to be flayed alive by the man standing there on that smoke-wreathed bridge. Crick. Crick's vast host gathered in the arena at the center of the city. It was an elevated circle of black basalt carved out like a giant funnel, rings of balconies and seats converging on the small central platform. Though used most often for gladiatorial contests, many of which featured Crick himself, the central space was not bounded by any rails, walls, or gates that might contain the warriors. Battles began on this stage but ranged the whole arena. Competitors were not only expected but encouraged to use the topography, weaponry, and even citizenry of the arena in their fight. The outer rim of the stadium was lined with a variety of barbed and spiked weapons provided by the state. Bone, stone, and horn, but of course, no iron. To get a metal weapon, a gladiator would have to wrest it from the claws of a spectator. Often obnoxious crowd members lost arms or tails taken up as makeshift cudgels and whips, and sometimes smaller beasts were used whole. It was not a gladiatorial battle scheduled today, though. This crowd had assembled for a state execution. They still brought their weapons in hope that they might get a chance to join in on the fun. In the center of the arena, Urza Planeswalker hung, lashed to a much scarred column of obsidian. The pillar was traditionally used to execute traitors who were mauled to death by gibbering horrors. With Urza, the mauling hordes were needed to keep him weak and defenseless while Crick flaunted his new prize. The largest of his three executioners was little more than a massive fist of flesh with two tiny eyes positioned under a pair of jagged pinchers. At intervals, the beasts lunged in and eviscerated Urza, dragging his steaming entrails onto the polished basalt. The other two beasts were jackal-headed spiders waiting to leap in should Urza overpower the other killer. Crick paced before the knot of them, hissing with laughter. Though given to excited ovations whenever the planeswalker was assaulted, the gathered throng of beasts was otherwise silent, straining to hear every word of their ruler, their god. He spoke to them not in the dulcet tones that he had used to ply Joyra all those years ago. He spoke to them in no human language at all, but rather in the growling, crackling tongue of Phyrexia. Urza, who could drink down languages like water, knew what he said. Children of Phyrexia, scions of the greater god Yogmoth and his son Crick, newts and negators in spawn of time, behold the man who brought us here. Behold the man who opened for us the gateway to this new paradise, to Dominaria. This statement was punctuated by a brutal lunge from the pinchered beast. Rent viscera spilled and fetid flow on the floor. A throaty howl erupted from the gathered throng. Even as the monster withdrew and Crick began again to speak, 
hers as innards writhered on the floor. They drew themselves by force of will back into the murdered man. He has a long, honorable history of aiding our coming domination. In the caves of Koilos, he and his brother, Mishra, sundered the power stone that had locked us away from Dominaria, thus opening the way for us. During Ursa's subsequent war against his brother Mishra, followers of our patriarch Gix were welcomed into both armies, and Gix even made a Phyrexian out of Mishra. When Ursa learned of his brother's conversion, he was so delighted, he loosed a catastrophe across Dominaria to slay its greatest armies, sink its mightiest nations, and soften the way for us to invade. He forsook his world, his trusted associate Thanos, and even his own son, Harbin, all of which we have inherited. Harbin! Urza cried out in despair just before his gut was ripped open again and there was no breath left to scream. Allying himself with our comrade, the Newt Zancha, Urza traveled to Phyrexia under the pretense of war. In truth, he was drawn to us like a gnat to the Great Lantern. He desired to join us to become one of us. To show his good faith, he led an army of us to the realm of Sarah, where we initiated a war of conquest that brings the Angel Realm to its knees even now. He betrayed the woman who healed him and gave us her plane as a trophy. The hisses and groans of delight almost drowned out the sounds of spilling blood. Now, our eternal champion, our spy in Dominaria and throughout all the plains has come to us. He's come to pay homage to Yogmoth, the son of Yogmoth. Crick! He has come to grant us the world. He has given us his brother, his associate, his son, his best friend, and now he gives us himself. Once he is dead, no one on Dominaria can stand against us. Into the roaring ovation came a high-pitched whistle. The keen was omnidirectional and ear-splitting. Those Phyrexians with ears clutched them in sudden reflex. Those with knees crumpled to them. Even the massive pincher beast fell back its fist-like head clenching and flexing beneath the onslaught. Only two creatures remained upright, Crick and his captive. Together they saw a vast silver corona slice through the time envelope and shriek toward the rim of the arena. For one flashing moment, the machines were etched vividly in the sky, a circle of razor beaks and raptor talons and wings that glared like lightning. They crossed paths in a vast spiral and in precise succession, punched one after another into the beasts at the base of the arena. One monster's inch-thick skull shattered like glass as a falcon smashed into it. Another was split open from neck to navel and spilled gray-blue organs out over its shag-furred lap. Beside that creature, a crane-necked monster was undone when a falcon bit through its neck in a shrieking pass. The creature's eyes darkened and its head tilted and dropped away like the crown of a felled tree. Whenever a falcon tore cleanly through a beast, it would continue on to attack the next one, killing two or three in progression. Whenever a falcon was caught in a particularly resistant ball of muscle or cage of ribs, its wings stabbed outward. Spinning saw blades emerged from its frame to mince whatever meat lay about. Phyrexians penetrated by falcons jittered in death spasms, their punctured bowels or chests or brain pans boiling with vicious motion. In an instant, the 300 beasts in the lower seats were slain, they crumpled and jittered and spilled downward in a wave of death that crept visibly up to the arena. Falcons darted like electrical jags from beast to beast, dropping them wherever they stood. More metallic birds roared in and impacted. In the second instant, the remaining 700 Phyrexians took up their own defense. They swung blades and clubs to bash the birds from the sky. The tide of slaughter slowed but did not stop. 
The shriek of silvery wings was joined by a manifold roar of fighting and dying Phyrexians. In the midst of it, tied to the obsidian post, Urza at last recovered fully from the pincher beast's attacks. His abdomen reassembled, his flesh knitted in glowing health. He lifted his head. The jackal-headed spiders cowered back from the quicksilver cyclone that ravaged the stands all around. With a summoning of will, Urza reached out to the mountains of Talaria and drew from them the power for four spells. A red flare arced out from Urza, burning away his ropes and impacting the pincher beast. He amplified the kindled blast with his own mounting fury. The massive monster went to shreds of meat before him, blood extinguishing the fires there. The jackal spiders pivoted in sudden amazement, and Urza flung out two other spells, fireballs splashing across them and sizzling them away, his own figure steaming with rage of the moment. Urza stalked past the smoldering heaps of his attackers, seeking the Phyrexian at the heart of all this. But Crick was already gone. Karn plummeted. He passed the ravening time envelope, but tore futilely at his wires and conduits. Heat sparked across his frame, his orientation meters went haywire, and he could not distinguish up from down, past from future. Then, in a sick rush, he was through, plunging into the fast time gorge. That was the worst feeling of all. Something in Karn responded to that place, something at the core of his being. Though he sensed the reek of oil, blood, and decay in the air, though he saw the wicked outline of the monstrous city below, and he knew Urza was there somewhere, trapped or dead, still there was a harsh rightness to it all. It was a vast, desolate beauty that could not help being drawn to. At first, he couldn't imagine where the rogue feelings arose, but then he knew. It was the core of his being, the power stone that provided him mind and heart and soul. It had come from these monstrous creatures. Karn had come from here. Karn landed in a brackish lake. Filthy water coursed into every seam and hollow of his body. He struck the muck bottom, bones and decay over bedrock. Heaving himself upward, Karn stood and discovered his head cleared the surface. The rock wall of the gorge towered before him. He turned, for the first time clearly seeing the demon city Carrick had built. From a volcanic outcrop at the base of the canyon roll a bristling collection of towers, walls, spikes, and battlements. The gorge walls all around the city stared out at it with deep black minds like mourning faces, twisted and dribbling. The waters were carn-weighted, teemed with ravenous creatures, many of which even now converged and nipped at his silver frame. Above the city, clouds of mechanical falcons circled in a great storm. Urza would be at the center of that storm. Ignoring the snapping jaws and battering tails, Karn trudged toward the city. The tide had turned. Most of the falcons were spent. Many Phyrexian negators remained. Urza's enchantments were used up. The artifact creatures he had summoned were being dismantled in the claws and fangs of his foes. Over grisly steps of dead, Crick's nation converged on the center of the arena to slay Urza. He could perhaps muster the strength to planeswalk, though the trip would merely take him to some other dark corner of the time rift. There he would die when Crick returned. Better to fight now and decimate his foes. Suddenly, into the bleeding, black arena came a silver figure, Karn. He advanced in his slow and ceaseless way, casually tearing arms and stingers and tails from his assailants and continuing on. They swarmed him, but he carved a path through them. They piled on him, but he dug his way out. An infernal court came with him. Smoke bombs struck among the advancing circles of Phyrexians. Shrapnel sprayed out a killing ring. More glistening oil mixed with what already painted the seats, and here and there it caught fire. 
Urza gazed up through the rising ring of sulfur smoke. There, frozen in time above the gorge, was the figure of an ornithopter. It hovered low over the temporal envelope. Urza thought he could make out the shadowy figure of its pilot. Better still, uncoiling in silvery promise from the craft came a slender metal cord. It looped down into the time rent, unwrapped and swayed within paces of Urza. Suddenly, the Silverman was there too. He collapsed the strand in one powerful arm, caught up his master in the other. How slowly they rose above the shrieking hordes. Thrown scythes and arrows pinged from Karn's skin or buried themselves in Urza until he could will them outward again. Soon, though, they were beyond the reach of any thrown weapons and then beyond even the few ballistae that were still operational. They took one final glance at the shrinking city of devils littered with the remains of his falcon engines. I've only given them more metal, more power stones to fight us! Urza gasped out grimly. Then the corsicating edge of the rift enveloped them. Even as I flew them from that vile gorge, I knew this meant full-scale war. We would have ten or twenty years to ready our arsenal. Crick would have one or two centuries. But all-out war would certainly come. And this time the battlefield would be all Talaria. Baron, Magemaster of Talaria.